Let me just uh, reprise a little bit. We've been talking about faith being reasonable. And uh, I'm reluctant sometimes to talk about we can prove that Christianity is true because um, being of a philosophical frame of mind, uh, I believe in a very strict understanding of the word prove. And if that's the case, you can, you can prove almost nothing uh, and very little that, uh, that, that we actually care about. Um, and you can certainly prove nothing of, the, of empirical science. You can, you can establish it to a higher or greater degree of probability. And uh, some people say, well, if that's the case with apologetics, we don't need it because we don't need probabilities, we need certainties. Well, let's just say some probabilities are so high that you might as well count them on as certainties. <clears throat> there is a 99.9999999, take it out, percent chance that the sun will rise tomorrow. But it isn't 100%. Um, astrophysics could be wrong about the nature of supernovae and, say, and, and they're wrong about the fact that our sun is too small to go nova and... It could do that this evening, uh, and you would not have to get up and go to work tomorrow. I used to use that example when I talked to students, and I said, yes, there's a 0.00001% chance that the sun won't rise tomorrow, but you'd best not take those probabilities and not bother to do your homework. Um, If I could be certain that I could uh, go to a casino, and I don't go to casinos for those of you who are taking those, uh, and be certain of those odds, <clears throat> well, I'd go to a casino every day, and, uh, and I could make my living that way. There we go. But we've been trying to establish that faith is reasonable, and uh, the Christian faith makes four foundational truth claims, and I'll reprise these briefly. Um, the first was that there is a God... Is there a God? Well, yes, there's a God. I I know there's a God. You know there's a God. I believe everybody knows there's a God. I'm a Calvinist that much in the sense that I do believe everybody has a census divinitatis. Um, One of uh, the uses of the modern psychological affirmation of what's called denial, which is mainly applied to addicts uh, and alcoholics, is that there is a ready explanation for why if everybody knows there's a God, why doesn't everybody act like it? Uh, Because we're in denial often. But there is a God, and reason can show that there is a God is more reasonable, much more reasonable than its contrary. There is no God. The same thing with uh, the Bible is true. Can we prove the Bible is true? Not in the absolute strict sense of the word prove, but to become annoyingly repetitive, you can prove nothing in that sense except that you yourself exist and that you have sensual input or what you take as sensual input, which might not be because you can't prove that, that you exist and that you can do mathematics and logic and that's it. So... But the Bible is true, uh, is established to a high degree of probability, and is is much more reasonable, again, than its contrary. The Bible is not true. Today we're going to look at Jesus Christ as the risen Son of God. 
And this is where those who object to at least certain aspects of apologetics really object to the way I'm going to do it today. Because again, I I don't want to be misunderstood. I, I do believe the Holy Spirit does give you immediate firsthand knowledge. And I have to be careful even about the use of immediate because that means not mediated and all knowledge is mediated. But let's say immediate knowledge that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, whether or not you've studied history, philosophy, or scholarship. Nevertheless, um, if Jesus Christ really existed and he really did the things Uh, that the Bible says he did, and if the Bible claims that he was raised from the dead, and this claim is contained in what we can take as historical documents, that is the Gospels, well then, we can, and, and I believe we should, there's where the difference is, submit this claim to the court of historical investigation. And I think it's there that we can show that not only can the claim, Jesus is risen, he is risen indeed, wins in the court of faith. It also wins in the court of reason. Because again, uh, absolute strict proof is not my object. What my object is is show that believing that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead is not only reasonable, it's supremely reasonable. And in fact, to believe the contrary is unreasonable. Uh, second thing I want to point out about this is that the gospel is not simply a conclusion reached at the end of a historical investigation. It's not like, well, let's investigate whether Caesar really did cross the Rubicon and establish that uh, motto and uh, meme forever and ever, crossing the Rubicon. Uh, and then once we've established that, we have an interesting historical fact that will be recorded in textbooks and taught to world civilization students now until the end of time. It's more than that. It's more than a useful historical fact. It is, in fact, a proclamation of a history and life-changing event with overwhelming significance for every human being. So, in effect, it's news every day. But, of course, News or journalism, at least good journalism, has an historical aspect to it. That's because everything other than right now or right now is in fact past. So no matter how breaking the news is, it is technically always past. No matter yesterday being the past, last week, a month ago, 10 years, 1,000 years... 1,500 years ago. So there is a journalistic aspect to this um, that, that comes across in the daily proclamation, and you proclaim it, or you should proclaim it to yourself every day through, through Bible reading and prayer, and of course, we proclaim it every week on Sunday that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead for your salvation. But I still think you can historically investigate it. So we'll start with the question, can a miracle be historically investigated? Well, you could say a miracle is a supernatural event. So some people would claim that therefore makes it supra-historical or non-historical, and therefore you can't. 
And it is technically true that a miracle is, in fact, a supernatural event by definition. This doesn't mean against nature or violating laws of nature. It simply means that there really is something higher or higher dimension than material reality, which can intrude on, uh, intrude's probably not the best word, so let's say imprint in time and space and history. So a healing leaves uh, a walking man where once there was a paralytic. Cleansing a leper leaves us a clean man where once there was, uh, in the parlance of the New Testament, an unclean man. And a resurrection would leave a live person where once there was a dead body. And, and we mean a dead body. Uh, we're familiar with resuscitations. We're familiar with the fact that your heart can stop and it can be restarted. But you won't be pronounced clinically brain dead and then three days later rise from the dead and that would be considered normal for medical science. It's not. So if a live person who was once dead is raised, that, you know, that's going to leave a mark. Uh, and, and it did. And that is the claim, that it left a mark in time and space and history. So at least in principle, you can investigate a miracle like you can investigate any other event of the past. Um, the primary method of historical investigation, according to those who engage in such things, and, and I do of a secondary nature, but even those who do it a primary nature, would say it, it resembles a civil trial. And in this sense, in a, in a court trial or a uh, criminal uh, case, there are very strict rules of evidence of what is allowed and disallowed, some of which are merely technical. So you may actually find some truth, and this is a staple of uh, cop and court shows all the time. You may find the truth about something, but you can't admit it in court because somehow it technically violates a defendant's rights. Well, in the court of historical opinion, defendants don't have any rights. Uh, the truth is what counts, however you obtain it. Um, and as a matter of fact, a lot of, a lot of ancient artifacts were obtained by illegal search and seizure, uh, by looting, so to speak. But however we came by it, the, the, the evidence is admissible, and what counts is not... Uh, establishing something beyond a reasonable doubt, but according to a preponderance of the evidence, it established a conclusion that is more probable than not. Now, the most famous case of this, of course, is the O.J. Simpson case. O.J. Simpson uh, was found not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. I, I could engage in a very long digression here, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but the... Uh, uh, Ms. Goldman, I cannot remember her, uh, his first name, and then uh, his wife sued O.J. Simpson. And in court, this was a civil trial. Again, the standard was the preponderance of evidence. Uh, and he was found to be responsible for these deaths and was required to pay a, a large sum of money. And so it's, it's not called guilty, it's called responsible, but everybody knows what was meant. So that's the standard in a historical investigation. So given those standards, uh, 
how do we engage in a historical investigation? First, you weigh the evidence and you establish the facts. Now, this has been done for us. And I'm going to mention, I'll mention two resources just here in a second. And the first thing I want to do, which is also going to be one of the last, is talk about what it means by resurrection. N.T. Wright, about the first, oh, I don't know, one-fourth to one-third of his uh, massive scholarly volume, The Resurrection of the Son of God, and I say massive, it's close to 900 pages, uh, established beyond... uh, I think it is beyond a doubt, let's say a preponderance of the evidence that no one in the first century meant by resurrection anything metaphorical. The Jews and even the Greeks who did not believe in it understood resurrection to mean the bodily raising of someone who was dead back to real life. Uh, The idea that we could call it a metaphor is a total anachronism. And I think it's simply an evasion and a denial, but we'll come back to that. So the evidence is that Paul's, that the evidence of Greco-Roman culture, Paul's understanding of resurrection, and the Gospels themselves established that first century Christians believed that Jesus Christ was bodily raised from the dead. They believed it, first century Christians, and they claimed it. And so... We'll come back to that idea of an alternative view of resurrection as a metaphor, but for now, let's say this is what we're trying to establish historically. Was a man dead, dead by crucifixion and dead in the grave over the space of three days, was he bodily raised again to real life? That is the question. So a large preponderance of historians and biblical scholars agree on a set of minimal facts. This is actually so established it's become, it's lent its name to this particular method of apologetically defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's called the minimal facts approach. Based on the New Testament taken as a set of ancient historical documents, and this is again where people who object to this will object, because it does concede you do not, for, for purposes of argument, let's concede the minimal of facts approach we'll take, which is what I'm taking, uh, that the Bible isn't necessarily the Word of God and isn't necessarily inerrant. Um, I believe it's both of those things, but if we're playing, again, on the court of reason and historical investigation, let's say, okay, we'll play by those rules. Can you, in fact, establish a historical preponderance of evidence and come to a reasonable conclusion that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? And I'll leave the answer for the end here. So um, I'm going to recommend these two books if you're interested. They're a lot thicker than that. That's just the, um, that's just the PowerPoint image. Uh, the Resurrection of Jesus on the left is uh, by a, a Southern Baptist scholar by the name of Michael R. Lacona. And he says, uh, and he, he calls his volume a new historiographical approach. And he takes this minimal facts approach and develops it uh, just in quite depth. His book is also about 900 pages long. And then uh, N.T. Wright's well-known book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, uh, doesn't do exactly what Lacona does in quite that amount of depth, but he does have a section uh, 
Um, Lacona doesn't really talk about the meaning of the resurrection. He is interested simply in submitting it, the claim, to historical investigation and coming to a, a conclusion. Uh, Wright does more than that, but he does, uh, but he does deal with the historical question. So I'd recommend these two books if you're interested in really in-depth study and if you want a popular but still well worth reading book that deals with these, uh, I recommend Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, which is a, it's, it's a little older now. It's like 20, I think it's about 20 years old. But it still holds up well and it deals with serious questions of scholarship in a very uh, congenial storytelling type of way. Anyway, here are the facts that have been established. All these facts, and there's only going to be five of them, uh, we're talking about people who seriously study these things. We're not talking about internet atheists and, and the kind of people who say there's absolutely no evidence for the existence of God or the truth of the Bible. Well, that's just, frankly, a ridiculous statement that puts you, really puts you on the fringe of rationality. Uh, these are serious uh, scholars, some of them Christians, some of them skeptics, and a couple of them actual atheists. Um, I say a couple generically. There are more than a couple literally. Uh, and it is primarily dealing with the Gospels taken as historical documents, just like any other historical documents like Herodotus, Tacitus, Suetonius, any of these Roman or Greek historians. Um, they're taken seriously. And so if we take the New Testament seriously as a historical document, which you can, these are five facts that the, the majority of Ancient historians, uh, historians of ancient history, and New Testament scholars from conservative to skeptical agree on. And uh, these five facts. Jesus died by crucifixion. Um, the Quran denies this. If, if you have uh, had to deal with this. But as a matter of fact, it was established beyond, again, according to a preponderance of evidence, beyond anybody's reasonable doubt, that Jesus really suffered crucifixion and he really died from this. And typically, one did die from crucifixion. It's the most horrific form of uh, torturous execution that's ever been devised by the reason of man. And the Romans had their reasons, and of course, they were example. It says, you cross us then we'll put you on a cross, literally. And it was meant to be a warning to those that wanted to rebel or make trouble for the Roman Empire. So Jesus died by crucifixion. The second fact, his tomb was found to be empty. Now, Lacona himself wants to use the criteria, Michael Lacona, uh, whose work I am substantially following his and rights. He wants to uh, go with near unanimity, unanimity in order to establish his, his minimal facts. So he, he would leave this out of his set. He's going to come to the same conclusion I do, but we'll leave it at that for now. But still, nearly three-quarters to 80% of the scholars who study the New Testament, study this history, agree that Jesus' tomb was found empty and that it was the tomb that Jesus was put in and it was found empty. Third thing, his disciples claim that Jesus appeared to them. Now, virtually nobody doubts this. Well, 
Nobody who is a serious historian or a serious New Testament scholar doubts this. I mean, there are people who believe that Elvis and Tupac are alive and that there are actually alien visitations in Roswell, New Mexico. So I can't say nobody doubts this, but nobody who is a serious, trained historian or biblical scholar doubts that the disciples claim that Jesus appeared to them. Paul, a persecutor of Christians, becomes one, becomes one after claiming the risen Christ appeared to them. So you have a man who, believing it to be the righteousness of God that he do so, um, attacks, has imprisoned, and sets up for trial and execution anybody who names the name of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And then he claims to have met Jesus Christ as the risen Messiah. And then finally, James, the skeptical brother of Jesus, became a Christian reportedly after the risen Jesus appeared to them. Now again, uh, Lacona again would set aside this fact because only three quarters of scholars actually agree. I'm gonna go with three quarters myself. So this is my set of minimal facts. Um, Lacona's standard I thought was a little too high we agree slightly on procedure, uh, and he, he wants near unanimity uh, in establishing the minimal facts. I'm, I'm going to go with 75% chance because, again, I'd take those odds to a casino. Um, so these are the minimal facts. So in addition to those, we can add... Uh, psychological and sociological factors. They're kind of a subset and they're actually related to what we call the historical bedrock there. Uh, first of all, there was a psychological change in the disciples. On the left, there's a early Renaissance painting of uh, Peter preaching at Pentecost. So you took a man who, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, displayed cowardly behavior Uh, denied Jesus, he even knew Jesus Christ three times. And yet, not a month later, he is proclaiming publicly and then stood up to the Sanhedrin too that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that you need to believe in his name. Uh, On the the right is uh, Caravaggio, early Baroque painters, his, the conversion of St. Paul. And Paul, again, someone who, uh, for whatever reason he felt it necessary, I'm going to say he believed it was the righteous thing to do, persecuted the Christians, and then he became one. Uh, All the disciples went from being uh, bewildered, uh, afraid, to being uh, bold, and having a clarity of mind that one would not expect if their leader had been so terribly killed and yet remained dead. So we have to take those psychological factors into account. And then sociological factors. Uh, We've got to account for the dramatic changes made by a group of Jews in centuries-old worship practice. Wright goes into this in detail, but everything from Uh, The Lord's Supper of Sacraments to the change of worshiping on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, to worshiping on Sunday, and the rise of the church itself. How how did a a little sect, which at one point was considered simply a small subset of Judaism, uh, eventually become 
the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. Uh, there are alternative explanations to those sociological facts that I won't go into on a historical basis right now. We're talking about, well, how did this even get started? In effect, what was the Big Bang event that caused this expansion? So accepting that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead explains all this evidence without, without any difficulty or additional explanation. So let's take those five minimal facts. Let's take those psychological factors and those sociological factors. Does the, the f actual resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead explain these facts and these factors, yes. Do you have to add any ad hoc additions or speculations? No, you do not. This is what was claimed, so we're not making another story up, and this explains all those facts without any strain or problem whatsoever, that Jesus was actually raised from the dead. Now, we could stop there and say, well, we've already shown it's reasonable, but there are alternative explanations. Now, you may have heard some, such as the so-called swoon theory. Uh, Jesus didn't really die. He, he actually just fainted, and then the coolness of the tomb revived him. And no serious historian actually believes that anymore because it's silly on the face of it. Um, plus, the idea that the fact that Jesus died by crucifixion is uh, near unanimously accepted as fact. And then another one is the disciples stole the body, which again is very ad hoc, again makes no sense, and again very few scholars, serious historians or New Testament scholars, would go this way. Um, Dominic Crossan, who's a very radical uh, Christian New Testament, well, I, I believe he considers himself a Christian. New Testament scholar uh, believes that, yes, the tomb was empty. That's because Jesus' body was eaten by dogs. Well, that explains it, but that's wholly made up. In other words, there isn't any evidence. There, is, there was no claim up, up until, that I'm aware of until Dominic Crossan's claim, and it's just something made up ad hoc additional to explain how an accepted fact came about. How was the tomb empty? Well, it was never filled, according to Crossan. But he doesn't deny that the tomb is empty. His is not a major explanation. There are two. First of all is psychological explanations. Uh, this is the idea that the disciples hallucinated these. There's several problems with this. First of all, there's no such thing as a group hallucination. Uh, shoot, even if we all took the same drug right now, don't do that, but if we all did, we would not all have the same hallucinations. Hallucinations are literally in your mind, and so they're individual. Uh, hallucinations usually appear once and don't happen again, uh, unless you're literally insane, which we don't have that evidence for the disciples. Uh, this hallucination uh, uh, hung around for 40 days, and hallucinations don't normally eat. Jesus ate fish. They don't normally get involved in, uh, in, in discourses and involve conversations. Jesus did. Uh, 
the, the idea that they hallucinated uh, is uh, supposedly is drawn out of the disciples' grief-stricken psyche, uh, which induced a form of psychosis, which induced hallucinations. Again, that story is wholly made up. It's utterly conjectural. And again, the only reason that it is created is to avoid the conclusion that Jesus was raised from the dead. So psychological explanations don't work either. There are metaphorical explanations, and I already, I already dealt with that, but I'll, I'll explain it again. This is the idea that what counts is not that Jesus' corpse was literally raised. That's so crude. We can't believe that, according to liberal scholarship. Uh, that would be a terrible soundbite. Um, this is the idea that resurrection is a metaphor for our faith in Jesus' mission or the belief that somehow through the church he still, quote, lives on, unquote. That the disciples, the first Christians, the first disciples never meant this to be taken literally, that they meant it metaphorically, and that somehow or another the later church, starting with the second or third century, hijack this uh, metaphorical belief uh, and in order to control the masses, I guess, uh, turn it into a belief in bodily resurrection. Again, there is simply no evidence for that. It is a conjectural story. It's a historical fiction. Um, most people won't die for metaphors. I won't. Uh, metaphors are great, but they're literary expressions. And you really don't get the idea in the Gospels, which was we have already seen can be dated fairly close to when these events actually happened. You don't get the sense in the Gospels that these are simply extended metaphors or simply it's simply a literary figuration in order to get across that we can still believe in Jesus' mission. So these types of explanations also fail. So what we're left with after considering the historical, psychological, and sociological facts and evaluating alternative explanation, the best explanation for this evidence is that Jesus did bodily rise from the dead. Now, most historical arguments are arguments to the best explanation. If you have a set of facts and evidence you need to account for and you have a hypothesis or an explanation, which one of these explanations, this works in science too, but not quite the same way as in history. Which one of these explanations is the best? Which one of them answers all the facts, does so without difficulty, and does so without adding any additional ad hoc or made-up stories? And the answer to that question is the only explanation that does this is that Jesus Christ really was bodily raised from the dead. And so again, we can take the claims that Jesus, the claim that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, go play on the court of reason and historical investigation, and we can show that it is perfectly reasonable, in fact, more reasonable than anything else, to believe that Jesus Christ really was raised from the dead. Amen. Anybody have any questions? Uh, Robbie.
So Robbie is saying that uh, neither Peter nor the other disciples really displayed courage until the Holy Spirit indwelled them, which I wouldn't argue with that. On the other hand, the influence of the Holy Spirit is, is not a fact subject to historical investigation. And so, again, and peop, uh, I'm not saying you're objecting to the minimal facts, but this would be one objection. Well, you're not taking account of God's actual ability to interject himself into a situation, in this case, through the Holy Spirit. Well, it was uh, at that point, and we do have evidence that the Holy Spirit indwelled on the Gospels or in the right. Acts. And it was at that point that the church began to grow exponentially. You know, Peter goes blasting out the doors and 3,000 people came to faith that very day. Right, of course, I don't disagree. So I am a believer, oh, and, and, and uh, just so you know, and I do believe, and I've said repeatedly and will say repeatedly again, I, I believe, I, I mean, really, that the Holy this is, I'm not just making this up from, you know, emotion or I, I have experienced this in my own life, and I really do believe that. But again, there, there is a sense in which uh, supernatural events do leave imprints. And so you could say what accounts for Peter's boldness, and one could say, well, the Holy Spirit. But one could also argue that uh, if a resurrection from the dead strictly on an emotional basis, should provide enough impetus. Yeah, they sat around too much. We all, we all know the story. You know, you need to get up and get out and go beyond Jerusalem and preach the gospel. But again, as a matter of historical investigation, uh, I believe we can say that on a psychological level, uh, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead after such a horrific death uh, was sufficient from a historical perspective to account better than anything else because no one else accounts for it, actually. For the disciples going from afraid and hiding to courageous and public and anyway. Yeah, other questions? Yeah, Joel. Why is it uh, not included in the minimal facts um, that hundreds of people claim to see Jesus? Um, well, all I can tell you is uh, that after surveying uh, really in detail, and again, I recommend Lacona's book, he wrote it in 2010, and I believe, well, I, I don't think anybody will surpass it, but it's going to be a standard for at least another 20 years. After himself directly surveying all these scholars himself, he concluded that this was not a fact where a sufficient number of scholars, a, ma a large enough majority, agreed that he appeared. So you could include that. I, w I would certainly use it as, as leverage to talk about why hallucination theories don't work because there were many, many witnesses, uh, at least claimed, and hallucinations don't. Uh, uh, the, the claim is sort of contained in the fact that his disciples claim that he was raised from the dead. So it doesn't include, like I said, these are minimal facts. So it doesn't include a lot of detail. Yes. Right. Well, that, uh, it, so you're, you're inquiring if uh, the idea that, Je well, first of all, Jesus being the Son of God is the subject of next Sunday's 
lesson. So we're just, we're just getting, okay, he was dead, and then he was alive again. I mean, dead, dead, not resuscitated. But I mean, the idea that he actually... But this presumes a late date for John. It also presumes a great deal of editing. And I think, uh, yeah, there's going to be disagreement on Johannine scholarship, but I think dating the gospel to about 80 is correct. And, and so that's really not enough time for a legend to really develop, plus the fact that you have the reliable dating of Paul's letters to, some say as early as 45 AD. And Paul, while his uh, Christology, as they say, is, is not as pronounced or as heightened as John's, yet the claim that Jesus is God is still in Paul's letters. It's not just John. So while I won't say there's no evidence for the conjecture, because I'll still call it conjecture, that the later church invented the idea that uh, Jesus was God, again, I guess, to, to subjugate the masses. Uh, I don't think the best scholarship asserts this, and I certainly uh, don't agree with myself, and then we will deal with that in detail next week. Any other questions? Because that was just the first half of Jesus is the risen Son of God. He's risen. We'll get to the Son of God part next week. Is Jesus really the Son of God, the Messiah, the incarnation of the eternal Logos. So come back next week. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael.